This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Second Corinthians chapter 3 for this hour. Second Corinthians chapter 3. I was preaching away and I happened to look at the digital clock in the back and saw that it was 1046. So we stopped. <laughs> That's one way to get a guy to stop because you, he, I have to stop because the next guy, I didn't want to take away from his time. <laughs> That's one way to get a guy to be quiet and schedule him before himself. But uh, at any rate, uh, I commend you though. You were such a wonderful audience and I mean that. I was just having a great time. But uh, at any rate, uh, may the Lord uh, continue to speak to our hearts. You know, the cleansing power of the blood is good news. And it really is when you actually get honest, God cleanses you, you take it, you're clean, the Bible says so. But God wants us to move on to the filled life. You know, back in my early days as an evangelist, I didn't understand the spirit-filled life, and so all I could do was preach on the bad news. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, when God opens your eyes uh, to the spirit of Jesus filling you with the life of Jesus... You know, that's life-changing. That is impacting. And so uh, we want to begin by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 18, uh, to kind of give us an appetizer of where the Lord may take us here the next couple of uh, uh, days. Again, I remind you about tonight. Uh, I want to say another word about tonight. We're going to deal with focus. A lot of times we don't think about focus, and many times our focus is something other than Jesus, and it's why we never get to Jesus. And that something may be very good, but it's something other than Jesus. I want to deal with that tonight because I think it's so prevalent in our thinking. And may the Lord open our eyes. So I shall be in prayer this afternoon to prepare us for the truth of tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. The inspired text says, but we all, with open face, it's like a child, beholding. As in a glass, that would be a mirror, the glory, the glory of the Lord are changed, transformed, transfigured into the same image. Wow. That's what it says. That's not in heaven yet. That's this side of heaven because it says from glory to glory, there's an upward spiral. And how does this happen? Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to change us into the image of Jesus so that like mirrors reflect, there is a reflection of the person of Christ on the face of everyone who's a believer in Christ. I want to speak this morning, this hour, on a glow with Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this audience, Lord. Hungry hearts. Lord, the sense of anticipation and uh, upward faces. Lord, to hear from heaven. So, Spirit of God, once again, speak to all of us. As we look at this text, open our eyes. And Lord, I pray that the truth of this passage would impact us as you intend for it to. And so again, I plead and claim the victory of Jesus over the enemy that would seek to hinder. May that be blocked. And Lord, may we know, all of us, the freedom that's available in Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. 
A number of years ago, I was preaching in the country of South Africa, and the missionary friend took me to an area called Venda. Uh, Venda would be next to what's called Kruger Park. Kruger Park is a game park about the size of the state of Vermont or the nation of Israel. And that was a big game park, a uh, true jungle. On the other side of it is Mozambique, and a lot of refugees uh, hoping for a better life. Uh, get, uh, they, they come through that jungle trying to get to Johannesburg to get work. Uh, many times they lose family members to the animals. In fact, in the church that I was at, uh, there, the pastor told me a lady came through and she was distraught because she started with five children. She came out alone. There are many people who are desperate. And in this little town, it's called Mashamba. Uh, this is where we went. And you, you, gotta, you, you just got to get this in your mind. It's just a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing place, this village. Uh, I remember when the missionary uh, uh, took me in the first time. I've been there a couple of times. He, uh, he brought us by the marketplace, which, of course, is open-air marketplace. And we bought two live chickens to drop off at the chief's house on the way into the village. It's, you know, kind of protocol. You know, when I came into town last night, I did not drop off two live chickens with your mare. <laughs> That's not how we do it, but this is how they do it. And so, uh, you know, you, got, you just got to get this in your mind's eye. You know, uh, in, in, I don't know what it is today, but when I was there, this is going 20, uh, 25 years ago now. Uh, when I was there, uh, the majority of those villagers did not have electricity at all. I'm in some countries where they have it, sort of. <laughs> in other words, when it's turned on, which isn't much. But uh, in this village, they didn't have it, period, except for the chief and a couple of higher-ups. Uh, nobody else had electricity. Uh, the majority of the people, therefore, did not have running water. Now, try to imagine that. No running water. And so uh, in these houses, many of them had an earthen floor, kind of like a Michigan basement. I've lived out of Michigan, in Michigan, based out of Michigan since 98, Michigan basement. But this isn't their basement. This is their, this is the main floor. This is where they live, and it's an earthen floor. Uh, some of the houses have a cement floor. Uh, we stayed at the pastor's house. He grew up in that village, was called to preach, and started a church there. He had a cement floor, so we slept on the floor. Nothing wrong with that. Had our blanket, slept on the floor, and uh, got up in the morning. Now, they had... Uh, you know, the average American is used to, you know, taking a shower, you know, get cleaned up, ready for the day. Well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> There's no running water. Now, they did have a barrel outside the house where, some, uh, you know, somebody had hauled up some water from somewhere. And they would bring in a, a bowl full at a time into a little room uh, where you could get cleaned up. It, it was like a restroom, but it wasn't the restroom. The restroom was one of those outside ones. <laughs> uh, so it was a little room with a little bowl of water so you could wash your face kind of thing. And so when it was my turn, uh, I came into that little room and I looked around and there was no mirror. You know, the average American is used to looking at a mirror before he heads out for the day. Now, I realize that some look at it longer than others. <laughs> but most take at least, uh, you know, hopefully a, a glance to make sure things are not in total disarray uh, before they head out. Well, that's not going to happen. There's no mirror. Now, I've learned in my travels, you always bring a little travel mirror. And so I pulled it out, stuck it on a windowsill. It's small and it's, you know, slanted. And, and, but I did the best I could, combed my hair, got ready for the day. Well, a couple hours later, I had the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to 500 secondary students and what a delight you know this high school and uh, and uh, you know they didn't have an auditorium facility like this nothing of the sort we met out in an open courtyard and these 500 students stood the entire time that I preached and listened and you know I was mindful of the fact that they were standing so believe it or not I kept it short 
So if you think I'm going too long, you just stand up. <laughs> and I'll keep going. <laughs> well, as I'm preaching, you know, Mishra's got to get pictures to send back to the states, you know. So he's taking pictures, and so you have these 500 faces. What a joy. What a joy. They're looking this way, and he's behind me, you know, and I'm preaching away in the picture. <laughs> and uh, so they got the film developed. Remember when we used to develop film? And they got the film developed, so it took a couple of days. And I remember looking at this photograph and the hair on the back of my head <laughs> was sticking straight out. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, my mother used to call it rooster tails. My wife calls it bedhead. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, it was a bad hair day. <laughs> and I remember looking at that picture thinking, oh, man, don't I have any friends? <laughs> Well, that's the way it goes. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a mirror and you couldn't find one? Have you ever tried the back of a spoon? But all you see is your nose. <laughs> and with a Dutch nose like mine, it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've tried that a time or two. I remember one time I needed a mirror and I couldn't find anything. And I thought, man, I, I need a mirror. And, and then I saw a metal doorknob. So when nobody's looking, I'm looking at the doorknob, <laughs> trying to catch a reflection, but it was dull, and I could not catch a clear reflection. Now, in our text, the word glass is the concept of a mirror, and what's amazing about this passage is that believers in Jesus are here likened to mirrors that are to reflect, that have the privilege of reflecting the glory of the Lord. And you know, we live in a world that's obviously searching. You know, when you think about some of the bizarre things, the radical things that people do, if you can get past all the surface of that, down deep they're searching. They wouldn't be doing this. They're searching. And friends, there is a, there's, there's, there's someone put it, a God-shaped hole, as it were, in every person's heart. Only God can fill it, but sometimes people know that, and they're looking for this, and they're looking over here, and they're searching. And along the way, maybe they hear that you call yourself a Christian. In fact, not just a Christian, a born-again Christian. And whether you, or not, you and I are aware of it, I, I, I know there are people that they come and they look at us to see if there's any reality of him. Now, friends, I want to ask, who do they see? What do they see? Who do they see? Is it just us? Or is there that glimpse? Is there that glow? Is there that reflection? Is there that aura where they are coming into contact with Jesus? Now, friends, that's what this text is talking about. Every child of God, you, the spirit of Jesus lives in you. And that life of Christ on the throne is being streamed. God had this live streaming thing figured out long before live stream. That life is being live streamed right into you. And God means for that life to be seen, not hidden. God wants us to be aglow with Jesus. When you're filled, when you are revived, see, revive again life, life again. When the Spirit fills you with the life of Jesus, God wants that life, his life, to be manifested. So how does it work? Well, 
This is the Sunday School Hour. I'm going to do a different approach to the preaching. You know, uh, uh, instead of the normal homiletical approach of three points in a poem or whatever, uh, we'll do what they called 100 years ago a Bible reading. Now, it's more than just reading the surrounding verses. It's, it's looking at the surrounding context to see that which is going to shed light on this opening thought. So let's begin our walkthrough starting in verse 4 of chapter 3. It says, And such trust, that's faith, have we through Christ to God word. All right, so faith... Faith in God through Jesus. Okay, verse 5 is going to describe faith. It doesn't define it. It describes it. Not that we are sufficient, adequate of ourselves to think anything as of or from ourselves, but our sufficiency, our adequacy is of God. Now, I want to ask you, have you ever learned that lesson? It takes years sometimes. We're not sufficient. It says, for anything. You say, well, that's really hard on the ego. I know. That's why people stumble over it. This is why lost people stumble over the simplicity of salvation, that Jesus paid it all, that he finished the work. I remember talking to a dear lady in Ohio, older lady who was trying to work her way to heaven. She was a religious moralist, very sincere. And seeking to show her that, that only, you know, only God meets the standard of God. And that's why you need Jesus. Your righteousness won't, won't do. And she says, well, you're not giving me any credit. Well, that's the problem. And friends, if you're saved, you came to that. That salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And okay, Jesus paid it all and you trusted him. But it's amazing how we, we, we get to God. We, we get justified by grace through faith. And then on sanctification, we go back to self-effort works. We move from grace to struggle. Now, don't get me wrong. There are trials that we call struggles. That's part of it, this side of heaven. But you know the struggle of trying to live for God, to live the Christian life without the life of Christ, doesn't need to be one of our struggles. Right. See, the Christian life, friend, is, is not a, a set of doctrines. The Christian life is not a set of moral actions. Unsaved moralists have all that. The Christian life is a life, a person. His name is Jesus. Yeah. Jesus Christ is the Christian life himself, which means no one can live the Christian life but Christ. But here's the good news. When you get saved, Christ, the Christian life himself, moves into you to live his life, not yours. You see, only God meets the standard of God. That's why we need imputed righteousness, credited righteousness uh, in justification. It's why we need imparted righteousness in sanctification. And friends, the fact is, any attempt to live right without the righteous one is not right. We strive to do this and that. And Paul says, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, folks. He says, we're not sufficient. Have we learned this? I mean, I, you talk about grit your teeth, try harder, man. That's the average theology for many. If you blow it, just, you know, dust yourself off. Try again. <laughs> Maybe someday you'll make it. Oh, man. We just get up and we do it. We keep bouncing off the wall. Some of us get rubbernecks after a while. And we just hit that wall. We bounce off. We, we... No, wait a second. It says, 
It says we are not sufficient. We are not ad adequate to think anything is from or out of ourselves, obviously apart from him, because then it says, but our sufficiency, our adequacy, our enablement, our ability is from God. Now, friends, it's not enough to just acknowledge that. You've got to believe it. Now, verse 6, who God also hath made us able ministers. Now, he's not talking about human ability. He just said we're not able. But when you trust his sufficiency, then yes, he makes us enabled ministers. Now, notice this, of the New Testament. Do you know that's not just preachers? That's, that's the privilege of every child of God. To be a supernaturally enabled minister of New Testament truth. Wow. But notice the clarification. Not of the letter. We often think of letter of the law. This is interesting because here it's applied to New Testament truth in this particular verse. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills. Wow. But the spirit gives life. Wow. The letter kills. In other words, the word without the spirit is deadening. You ever wondered why Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, I came not unto you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. Friends, wow. Obviously we need the word, but we need the word energized by the spirit because the word without the spirit, the letter kills. Word-only preaching, word-only teaching, word-only child training, word-only witnessing kills. I'm going to tell you, that was a shock to me. I was 30 years of age when that truth just exploded across my heart. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm killing people. Friends, you've got to have the word and the spirit. And we live in a day where there's all sorts of imbalance. Satan tries to get us imbalanced. You know, some talk about the Spirit and they ignore the Word. Well, when you do that, then you go past what the Word says about the Spirit and it's no longer the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so uh, the Spirit without the Word leads to delusion and what we sometimes call wildfire or strange fire. Others, in reaction, in tragically overreaction to that, lift up the Word, that's a good thing, but minimize the Spirit, that's a bad thing. And now you've got the word without the spirit. That's what Paul's warning against here. And friends, when you have the word without the spirit, it's deadening, it kills, and it leads to no fire. Now look, I love reading revival history. And yes, there are times when you know, the, the enemy gets in and there's some strange fire. I don't want strange fire, but I'm going to tell you, no fire is not the answer to strange fire. <laughs> People say, well, I don't want a false experience. Well, I'm going to tell you, no experience is another false experience. God wants us to know the word and the spirit. That's dynamic. That leads to Holy Spirit revival fire. Wow. It's interesting because we live in a day where there's been a downplaying of the Holy Spirit. I think probably in reaction, overreaction to some who in the name of the Spirit discredited things and did get into excesses. But I'm going to tell you, friends, you cannot minimize the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of Jesus. He's the one who shows us Jesus. And you cut off that avenue, you don't see Jesus. Okay? And so he emphasizes here, the Spirit 
gives life. It's not talking about an attitude. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give life. Now look at verse 7. But if the ministration, that's the word ministry, of death. Well, that's an odd phrase, don't you think? Hey, what ministry are you in? Hey, I'm in the ministry of death. <laughs> you know, there's a couple in every church. <laughs> Probably more truth to that than we'd care to admit. Word without the Spirit. He says, is that what it's talking about? Well, let's look at it. But if the ministration of death, now it gets very specific. Written and engraven in stones. Now we are talking about the law, the Mosaic law, written and engraven in stones. Why is it called a ministry of death? Because, and we'll see this tonight in the text, the law has no power to help you do right. The law does not remove sin. The law reveals sin and condemns it. Thus, it is a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death. But notice, the law is holy and just and good, Romans 7 tells us. And we're told right here that this law was glorious. You remember when God gave his words, the ten words, and uh, that law. And uh, oh, wow, you know, when uh, Moses met with God there on the mount. You remember that one occasion when he came down and his face glowed. And there was actually a physical glow. And you remember he had to put a veil over his face. Can you imagine seeing that? It's pretty amazing. Sometimes we read these Old Testament things and we think, well, well that's kind of neat. And we, just, we, just, we miss the power of it. Wow. He met with God. There was glory. So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. Which glory was to be done away? But now look at verse 8. How shall not the ministration, the ministry of the Spirit, be rather, which is the idea of more glory? Okay, all right. So it's not denigrating the law at all. The law was glorious. The giving of the law was glorious. The law is holy and just and good. But the law does not remove sin. It only reveals sin. And thus it's a ministry of condemnation and death. But now, how shall not the ministry of the Holy Spirit who gives life be more glorious? The ministry of life is more glorious than the ministry of death, folks. <laughs> and that's what we're told here. The Spirit gives life, and the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious. How many of you know the name of the author from 100 years ago, well, 150 years ago, Andrew Murray? Andrew Murray. Okay, a few of you know that name. Uh, Murray pastored in South Africa. His family was uh, from Scotland. They went to South Africa. His father pastored, and then he grew up, and he went in the ministry himself. When he became the pastor of the church on the town square in Worcester, South Africa, what a beautiful town, surrounded by gorgeous high mountains uh, with waterfalls from the top coming down in the valleys and the vineyards and all of that. Well, when he came to that town, the first sermon he preached was that text in that church. I've been to the church. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And friends, it is no accident. It's a very interesting story. That church in a few weeks was in the midst of one of the great awakenings of God in that country. It started there in that church. Actually started with the young people. And that's a story that's just a, a great thrilling story. When a 15-year-old girl prayed and God came. But that thing broke open. And the, the story of intercession that led up to that with Murray's dad and with other people in that church before Andrew became their pastor. Who had worn out a pathway going up to the tall mountains to look down over the town and pray for God to come down and move. And God did do that. And within weeks they were in an outpouring of the spirit. The presence of God was felt uh, in the church. In the community it spread. 
It touched the nation. In our revival history books, it is known as the great revival of 1860. Well, there's so much more detail of that story, but I'm telling you it this much for this reason. In the midst of it all, the services would just roll. Time was lost. You know why time's lost in revival? Because the presence of God, who is the great I am, there's no time with God. That's why time is lost. When you're in the presence of the great I am, that's why time is lost. And uh, they would often dismiss and go home and look at their watches. It would be 3 a.m. Now, you don't have to have a service go to 3 a.m. to say you've had a revival. Those kind of details vary. But it is neat, isn't it? Can you imagine being in a service that goes to 3 a.m. and you thought it was just, you know, an hour? No, I've been in some services that were an hour. It seemed like it was till 3 a.m. <laughs> but let's reverse this. Wow. And that happened night after night. And when they would go home, they would sing their way through the streets of Worcester at 3 a.m. Can you imagine singing your way through your neighborhood at 3 a.m. and not being drunk? <laughs> Can you imagine singing your way through your neighborhood at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Friends, they, they were meeting with God. They were basking in the presence of God. They were reveling in the reality of God. And it did not matter what time of the day or night it was. They were singing his praises. They were lit up. Wow. How shall not the ministration, the ministry of the Spirit, be more glorious? Now look at the next section. It's going to contrast the two, the law, the ministry of death with the Spirit, the ministry of life. For if the ministry of condemnation, remember, law, law alone, death, be glory much more. So see the contrast, death, the ministration, the ministry of righteousness, the Spirit, life, Exceed, there's another comparative word in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. There's another comparative word. For if that which was done away was glorious, much more, there it is again, that which remains is glorious. You know, words could not emphasize this more strongly. That though there was a glory to the law and all that happened there and Moses' face shining, though there was a glory, there is so much more glory to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of life, the very life of Jesus. There is so much more glory that it eclipses the former glory. It, 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 it overshadows the former glory. It's as if the former glory has no glory. It's what it's saying by reason of the glory that just far outshines it then why are we in settings where this ministry of the Holy Spirit is either denigrated or ignored? No wonder there's lifelessness. You see, this is a powerful ministry. And when you grab a hold of it, it gets excited. Because look at verse 12. Seeing then on this basis that we have such hope. And that's not your word for wishful thinking, but your word for confidence, expectation. Seeing then we have such expectation. Why does it say that? Look, because we live on this side of the cross and this side of Pentecost. Jesus finished his work, rose again, went to the throne, sent his spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit has not been sent back yet. 
And I recognize the eschatological clock, I'm sure, is ticking. But I'm telling you, we're still in the age of the Holy Spirit. And yes, while there's, there's a falling away on the one side, there's still the life of the Spirit on the other side. How many times in our Old Testament even do we read that before final judgments fall, there's great revivals. It is in the heart of God to revive the revivable and save the savable before that judgment falls. God prefers to revive rather than to judge. We still live in this age of the Holy Spirit. And so it says here, seeing then that we have such confidence. This one who enables us, this one who is our sufficiency, this one who is our adequacy, this one who is our leader, this one who is our power source, seeing we have such hope. He says we use great plainness, boldness of speech. Now, don't misunderstand. Boldness is not brashness. You can do that in the flesh. Boldness is being free to say what ought to be said. And friend, I'm going to tell you, when you're in tune with Jesus, when you are walking in the Spirit, He frees you to be unashamed of Jesus. And when we find ourselves all bound up and we can't speak and we are ashamed, we're out of tune. Because when you're in tune, there's great boldness. D.L. Moody, uh, they say, I think he was brilliant, but they say he didn't have that much education. I think it was up through the fourth grade, but I think he was a brilliant man. But nonetheless, uh, because of that, uh, he, they say, slaughtered the king's English. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Don't you think it's ironic that he goes one day to the king's land? It's called England. And he goes to the city of London, an intellectual center of the world. And he puts an ad in the paper and challenges the Atheistic League of London. It was a league of 5,000 proclaimed atheists, the self-proclaimed intellectuals of the city, and he challenges them to come to such and such an auditorium on such and such a night and hear him preach. That's amazing. Do you know that 2,000 atheists showed up? I don't know what our numbers are here this morning. This is a wonderful crowd. Can you imagine being in a service with 2,000 atheists? It'd be a different atmosphere. <laughs> Moody gets up and says, what hymn do you want to sing? One of the guys yells out, atheists don't sing hymns. <laughs> uh, so Moody sang uh, by himself. And then he preached. 2,000 atheists. He preached the gospel. He gave an invitation. Who will trust Christ? Nobody moved. It was like it was frozen. So he said to the ushers, you may open the doors. And he looked at his crowd and said, if you would like to leave, you may leave. No one left. Moody preached a second gospel message. Gave an invitation. Who will trust Christ? And one of the atheists pathetically cried out, I can't trust Jesus Christ. Moody said to the ushers, you may open the doors. Anybody would like to leave, you may leave. Again, no one left. He preached a third gospel message. Gave an invitation. Who will trust Christ? And the leader of the Atheistic League of London himself stood up and in defiance said, I won't trust Jesus Christ. And D.L. Moody pointed at that man and he looked at that audience and said, There's your leader. How many of you will follow him? <laughs> Nobody moved. And D.L. Moody preached a fourth gospel message. The prodigal son text 
gave an invitation and said, who will trust Christ? And 500 atheists were no longer atheists. They were born again. And Moody kept preaching over the next couple of nights before it was all done. 2,000 out of the 5,000 had come to Christ, born again. It broke the back of the Atheistic League of London in that day. Now, friends, what can motivate a man who did not have much formal education who did not use the English language well to go to England and go to London and challenge the Atheistic League to come on such and such a night and hear him preach. What could motivate a man to do that? Well, is it not obvious that he understood the sufficiency was not in Dwight Lyman Moody? But is it not also very obvious he understood and didn't just understand, he was convinced, he believed that the sufficiency was in the spirit of the risen Christ. And because he had such hope, he could use great boldness of speech. There it is. Now, friends, you and I may not have the same calling as D.L. Moody. I understand that. But you have a calling and a purpose in God's kingdom work now. And we cannot do it apart from the same ministry of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're just beating the air. Verse 19, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Look, if you, don't, if you and I don't walk in the Spirit, that's what we're doing. We're putting a veil over Jesus. Jesus resides in you. We'll see some of those details, I'm sure, in the next couple of nights. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of times people don't see him. Because when you walk after the flesh, then you look like flesh, and unsaved flesh and saved flesh looks the same. Think about it. And so we're, we're veiling, we're putting the veil so people don't know that Jesus is inside. As one preacher put it, Ian Thomas, he's now with the Lord, we're imprisoning the Son of God right within us. Wow. It doesn't have to be that way. Because he says, and not as Moses, and not as Moses, which put the veil over. And he goes on, verse 14, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, that's their heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, we might think it's the other way around, that the veil is taken away so their heart can turn to the Lord. No, it's by faith. The heart turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit. Do you know the Holy Spirit is called Lord in that text? Because He is Lord. He is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. And friends, we don't need to minimize any one person of the Godhead. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of getting back into balance here. He's called Lord, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, that is where He's yielded to as Lord, where, where, where He's Lord, where you're yielding Him as Lord, there is liberty. You see, liberty is the way of faith in Jesus alone, and where you're yielding to the Spirit of Jesus, where He's Lord, where you're trusting His leadership, His power. There's freedom. Because when you access Jesus, you're free to do right. Because <laughs> he does. <laughs> there it is. 
Verse 18, but we all with open face, just like a little child beholding. That's a, not a casual look. That's a careful look as in a glass. So it's not actually looking in a mirror, but it's a concept here that's like looking into a mirror. And there we see the glory of the Lord. And when you see Jesus, you're changed. That's the word transformed in Romans 12 too, and transfigured in the gospel speaking of Jesus. And you remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration allowed that glory that he had set aside to come into our world. He allowed that glory to be manifested and it lit him up. The text indicates it lit up his clothes. And here that word is used of you. See, who Jesus was was manifested. He was transfigured. And God wants who you are to be manifested. You say, oh, I don't want anybody to know. No, you're missing it. Because Jesus lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God wants who you are. Christ in you to be manifested. Why? Because people get touched by Jesus. And friends, when that happens, it's powerful. And among believers, there's this spiral, this upward uh, uh, glory to glory changed into the same image, all by the ministry of the Spirit of Jesus. Now in James, it talks about the Word of God being a mirror. That's a wonderful text. I, I love preaching on that text as well. But in this passage, you're the mirror. Whoa. <laughs> wow, how does that work? Well, it works. I remember years ago, I was holding meetings in downtown San Francisco. We were staying in a prophet's chamber because I didn't want to pull my fifth wheel <laughs> into downtown San Fran with all the hills and everything. And so uh, uh, to get John Jr. out, he was just a little guy, little guy at the time, toddler. And uh, I, I'd take him out, and, and we'd go down the street, and there's a Starbucks, you know, on every other corner. And, and so I had John trained. If I stuck a gospel track in his hand, he'd hand it to the nearest person. Boy, that got interesting on the streets of San Francisco. And uh, in Starbucks, it was really neat because it opened up some great conversations. And it started a ministry for my son and I called Starbucks Evangelism. I'm for new methods. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so uh, a couple of months later, I was in Cheyenne. I said to my wife one afternoon, I said, hey, I'm taking John. We're going to Starbucks for Starbucks evangelism. Of course, that also means for a latte, but <laughs> we walked in. Young lady standing there, looked up, smiled, and said, hello, may I help you? And immediately the thought went through my mind just involuntarily. She knows Jesus. Now, it wasn't based on what she was wearing. I don't, I don't remember what she's wearing. She's standing behind the counter. And it wasn't just that she smiled. Did you know that an unsafe person can smile? <laughs> but there was a reflection. Amen. There was that glow. That aura. How do you explain this? It's invisible, yet it's real. It's just that it's spiritual, not physical. But it's just as real as if it were physical. Well, we placed our order. I handed a track in John's hand. He hands it to her. She said, oh, I'm a born-again Christian, too, and gave a clear testimony. I already knew. I remember I was somewhere... <laughs> You say, where? I don't know. People call me and say, where are you? I, I don't know. <laughs> when you travel like I do, sometimes you wake up, I don't know, where am I? But I was somewhere, and I was at a, at a post office, and uh, there was a big line that day and a couple of workers, and I saw one lady. Now, it was a distance maybe seven, eight yards away, and I'd never met her before in my life, never seen her before in my life. And I said, man, that lady is so lit up with Jesus, I hope I get to talk to her. I did get to talk to her. Guess what? <laughs> She knew the Lord. I said, ma'am, are you a born-again Christian? She said, well, yes. How did you know? You know, Moses wist not that his face shone. But others saw. Friends, this is real. You say, is it really what it's talking about? Look at the next verse. Therefore, seeing we 
have this ministry, this ministry of reflecting Jesus, of being aglow with Jesus. As we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Look, you leave out the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you've got to get deceitful to try to get the work of God to look like it's getting done. But you get the Holy Spirit in this thing. You know what? He draws people to Jesus because Jesus is attractive. But by the manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. For we preach, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Now I want to ask you, what does it mean to preach Christ? We often say, well, you preach the gospel. Well, that's a part of it. Is that all? I learned this from my dad. <laughs> Some of this is taking years for it to sink in. Preaching Christ is not just merely saying the right words. But that as you preach the message of the gospel, they actually see the very Jesus of the message. And something just fell. There it is. <laughs> it can get worse. <laughs> but as you're preaching the right words, they see the very Jesus of the words. That's what gives the gospel power. <laughs> You ever wondered why the guy that doesn't, forgive me for saying this, that doesn't seem like the, knife, the sharpest knife in the drawer is effective at reaching people with, uh, with, with, to Jesus? You say, well, how can he do that? Well, it's because he is accessing the sharpest knife in the drawer. His name is Jesus. You see, friends, that means there's hope. Amen. <laughs> you access Jesus. That means when you're giving that gospel message, he's there. There's that glow. There's that touch. They're hearing his voice. That's what gives the message power. Now, I was talking to some friends of mine. He's now with the Lord. Had a heart attack, dear friend. But his wife uh, was from the country of China. They went back to visit there. Had a three-week tour, and this atheist guide was showing them around. And the atheist said, well, how do we know that, you know, your, your Jesus just isn't your form of our Confucius? And my friend said, well, because Jesus rose again from the dead. Hmm, that's a good response. The atheist said, how do you know? You know, that's a fair question. Now, I love how the conversation went. It's interesting because over the years, there have been various infidels that have tried to disprove the resurrection and gotten converted in the attempt. <laughs> but the conversation went a little differently. The, the, the guide was just saying, well, you know, three weeks ago when we all met as a group, he said, I, I, I was somehow just drawn to you too. And my friend's wife caught it. She said, you know, if you were drawn to us, there's nothing in us in and of ourselves for you to be drawn to. But Jesus lives in us. And that's how you know he rose again. Amen. And there was a long pause. And the atheist said, I believe you. Fifteen years ago, there was another Christian, a born-again Christian in my group, and the same look that was in her eyes, I see in your eyes. That's the Jesus look. Friends, you know what a revived life looks like? It looks like Jesus. Wow. 
So all of our personalities, all of our different features and backgrounds, all of that gets lost with the glow of Jesus. And that's reality. That's the spirit filling you with the life of Christ. That's the spirit for the life. That's what it looks like. Now we'll see as we move on in this meeting some of the steps of faith that access this, but that's the provision. You say, is that really what it's talking about? Look at the next verse. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, the God of creation hath, now notice, shined in our hearts. We're the mirrors. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why would God do it? Why would God do it this way? Verse 7. But we have this treasure, this ministry of allowing the Spirit to shine Jesus through the mirror of our lives. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Wait a second. You don't make mirrors out of clay. The point is, it's miraculous. It's supernatural. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. This is why God gets the glory. It is his glory. <laughs> Friends, you got the text right up here. This has been your theme this year. We just landed on those verses. And friends, a revived child of God is filled with Jesus. And you may wish not that your face will shine. In fact, everybody who thinks their face is shining probably isn't. <laughs> But oh, when you're walking in the Spirit, yes, then there's this Jesus look that's very real. Now, back to where we started at the beginning of the message. Looking at that doorknob and not being able to get a clear reflection. I wonder if the mirror of our lives is smeared. You know, bitterness smears a lot of mirrors. Indulging the flesh in a sensual world, smears the mirror. Arrogance, self-righteousness instead of God's righteousness, it all smears the mirror. But as we saw in the first hour, you can walk in the light. And that blood of Jesus will clean the mirror so that it is sparkling clean and people see Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. Take it deep within us. And Lord, in the time we have, in the next several hours, Lord, if there are some matters you bring to mind that are in the way, may we walk in the light that your blood might clean us up. And Lord, I pray that we would be a glow. That Good News Baptists would be filled with individuals who are filled with good news personified. Yes. As Jesus actually shines, animating our personalities, empowering our witness. And loving those around us who are in such deep need of real love. We thank you. We ask you to do a deep, deep work. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.